The term redemption, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard the term redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption is paying a price, a ransom, if you will, in order to free someone from captivity. At Clarksburg Baptist Church, we believe that when it comes to knowing true freedom, that there is only one person who is able to pay the ransom for us. So who is that one person? Well, let's look at the story. Actually, the redemption story is the story of two men. Now, the first man disobeyed God, and that resulted in condemnation for all people. The, the second man obeyed God, and his one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. No matter how devastating the consequences are from the act of the first man, the redemptive work brought about by the obedience of the second man reverses those consequences. However, in order to really understand and to really appreciate the magnitude of the work of the second man, then you have to grasp the seriousness of the act of the first man. When God created the heavens and the earth, he set boundaries for his creation, the seas, are an example. We read in Genesis 1-9 where basically God set boundaries when he commanded the water to flow together into one place so that dry ground could appear. So God created boundaries for the seas. Now, the first man in our story is literally the first man, Adam. And when, man, when God created Adam, God also set a boundary for Adam. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15 it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Because God wants a relationship with mankind that's based on love and that's based on obedience, he grants Adam the freedom to choose. You might call it free will. Although Adam is free to choose from any tree in the garden, there is a boundary. And that boundary for Adam is one tree. One tree. But even though there's a boundary there, God knows that because Adam has the freedom to choose, there is the possibility that Adam might ignore that boundary and cross it. So God tells Adam that there is a consequence if he crosses that boundary. And God says, you will certainly die. When you see that phrase other places in the Old Testament, it's a legal statement, and it's used when you are condemning a criminal to death. But when God uses it here, he's not just talking about physical death, 
But he's also talking about death that results from separation from God. So, you would think Adam would obey. But what happens? Adam disobeys. Adam disobeys, ignores the warning, and eats. He makes the wrong choice. And here's the magnitude of that disobedience. Here's the magnitude of it. Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. Sin is rebellion. Sin is disobedience to God's holy standards. And sin separates us from a holy God. Sin came into the world through one man. It came into the world through Adam. And because all of us are descendants of Adam, sin has infected us. And sin brought condemnation to the entire human race. Thanks to Adam, we have two characteristics in common, all of us. We are sinners and we will die. Adam's sin made physical death a reality for all of us. But it also made eternal death a reality for all of us. That is, unless we can find a way to be reconciled to a holy God. Unless we can find a way to have that severed relationship restored. But we're powerless to do it. We can't do that on our own. We cannot repair that relationship. And there is now this great divide between mankind and God. And there is no way that mankind can cross that great chasm that's there to get to God. It's impossible. That's the bad news. And it's pretty bad news. In fact, it would be depressingly bad news if it was not for the fact that God is a pursuing God. Adam and Eve ate from the tree. They heard God walking in the garden, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They ran and hid from God. And Genesis 3, 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? And so it begins. Human history since that moment has been the story of mankind running and hiding from God in God's passionate pursuit. He asks, Where are you? When he says, Where are you? He's not talking about a geographic location. He wants to know where you are in your relationship to him. But, but God is a pursuing God. And the Bible is the story of that pursuit. But here's the key point in all of this. Yes, God is pursuing us. But, but God refuses to leave us alone to follow our own self-destructive ways. And God is not pursuing us so he can destroy us. But God is pursuing us 
so he can save us. Even though sin has now separated a holy God from his creation, God doesn't give up on his creation. He pursues his creation. He pursues man. And he does that because he has a plan. God has a plan. You know, there are times in the Old Testament where God of his own initiative, God of his own initiative, came to create covenant relationships with man. Now, a covenant basically comes from a verb that means to bind. And in its noun form, it's a binding relationship between two parties. God's desire through these covenants is kind of summed up in this. He says, I will be their God, they will be my people. God of his own initiative. So mankind gets off to a disastrous start. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden forever. One of their sons kills the other son. The earth becomes so wicked that God destroys it with a flood. And then mankind is scattered throughout all the earth. But God comes to 75-year-old Abram with a covenant opportunity. And basically, he says, if if Abram will be obedient to what he's about to ask him to do, then he says in Genesis 12, 2, he says, if you're obedient, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. By making his descendants into a great nation who will be a blessing. God says that he wants to bring salvation to the scattered people of the earth. And Abram is obedient. Abram is obedient and he does what God asks him to do. And as time goes by, his descendants increase. They do. In fact, they increase so much that in Egypt, they are perceived as being a threat. So what the Egyptians do is they enslave God's people. But God hears their cries for help. And God, using his servant Moses as his earthly representative, delivers the people from the bondage of slavery. And as he's leading them to the promised land, they come to Mount Sinai, and God is going to make another covenant. In Exodus 19, he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. What a beautiful plan God has for Israel. What a beautiful plan. Not only will they be his treasured possession, but they will represent him to the rest of the world in an attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. And this is really important. Israel would, as priests, they would would intercede for the rest of the world by offering acceptable offerings, by the way that they live, by their sacrifices, And thus would improve that general distance between God and man. But a unique feature 
of this covenant was the law, summed up in the Ten Commandments. And God says that my promise is conditioned on Israel's obeying the law. Failure to keep God's law, though, will result in curses. And if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, Israel disobeyed. They were constantly rebellious. They were not obedient to God. And they suffered the consequences and the punishment. Well, Abram and now Moses are not the second man in our story. We're still waiting for the second man. Well, God is a pursuing God. Jeremiah 31, 31. God says that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the pursuing God who speaks these words, the Old, Test, the old Covenant, rather, with its law, could direct conduct, but it could not change their character. But this new covenant will not be like the old one. Because this new covenant will deal with the issue of sin once and for all. And the basis for this new covenant is the work of the second man in our story. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. But finally, what we consider the Old Testament comes to an end. And this man has not appeared. And what's worse is that for century after century after century, God is silent. There is no word from God. But the Bible tells us that at just the right time, at just the right time, when we were still powerless to bridge that gap that was created by sin, when we were still powerless to reconcile ourselves to a holy God, God acted. God acted. A young virgin named Mary is visited by an angel. And the angel says, you are going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to give birth to a very special son. Well, Mary's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Well, when Joseph finds out about it, Joseph is faced with a decision. He's got to decide if he wants to go through with his part or, you know, if Mary's been unfaithful to him, then does he want to end it? But an angel also comes to him with a message in Matthew one twenty one and says, She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In the words of Peter from Acts 4 
12, in one of his sermons, he says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there was no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the second man in our story. He is the one whose obedience will reverse the consequences of the disobedience of the first man. He is the one who will reconcile that relationship between man and God. He is the one who will be the redeemer. He is the one who will pay the ransom for our freedom. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. First, he says there is one God. There is one God. There are not many gods. There is one God. And then he says there is a single mediator between God and humankind, a single mediator, one person, only one, who can bridge that gap that we can't bridge. There are not numerous bridges across it. There are not numerous people who can reconcile us to a holy God. He says there is one. There is one mediator between God and mankind. And he says it's Christ Jesus. As the mediator, Christ removed the separation that was caused by sin and reconciled humankind to God. As fully God and fully man, he was in a unique position and uniquely qualified to serve as that go-between who could bring sinful people into God's family. The term mediator links him back to some of what we talked about in the Old Testament. The picture of Jesus as a negotiator who brings and who negotiates a new arrangement between God and humankind. And the term also emphasizes that God acted uniquely through him to fulfill this purpose. Not through many ways, but uniquely through him. And only through Christ can sinful humanity come to God. And then he says, Christ's death is a ransom. Christ's death is a ransom. He is the one who pays the price to liberate us and set us free from our bondage and our captivity to sin. Jesus was obedient, he gave himself. He died in our place. Jesus' death on the cross is the price paid for the release of humankind from captivity. He paid the ransom so that we could be free. But to paraphrase one commentator, it's important for us to note that although the death of Christ is for all people, the saving effects of his death are limited to those who respond in faith. It's available to all. It's a free gift available to all, but its effects are only for those 
who respond in faith. How do you respond? How do you respond? First of all, by confessing that that you're a sinner who cannot save yourself. And by asking forgiveness for those sins. And by believing that Jesus is the the Son of God who died for your sins and, and who rose again. And by surrendering your lives to his control. That's how you respond. That's how you respond. And here's the good news. If you will do that, if you will do that, the moment you come to Christ, you're justified before a holy God. When we are justified, we are freed forever or fully from the penalty of sin. We're freed from it. We're freed from the penalty of sin. And as we live obedient lives every day, then we are being freed increasingly from the power of sin. And one day, when we leave this earth, then we will finally and forever be freed from the presence of sin. That's what's available to us through the work of Christ, through our accepting his gift, through our response. Then we can be freed from the penalty, from the power, and one day from the presence of sin. That's a lot to remember what we've talked about today. It's a lot to remember, but if, if, if you want something to just keep in your mind, Paul provides for us just this wonderful summary. You can build on it, you can study from it, but here's the summary. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he says, For as in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Freedom comes through Christ alone. If you've not accepted the offer, accept his offer of freedom today. Let's pray.